You are listening to the Signal to Noise podcast on the Pro Sound Web Podcast Network, sponsored by Audix. Hear what you've been missing. Audix is proud to introduce the new line of dynamic closed-back headphones designed for audio professionals and audiophiles to deliver the most accurate sound possible. I wish I could break free Back to where I'm supposed to be Hey, welcome back to the Noise Podcast. I'm Chris Leonard. Tonight, Michael Lawrence is with me. How's it going? Hey, buddy. What's going on, man? Doing good. I'm, it's uh, there's a lot going on. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, it's a special episode tonight. I fired up my lava lamp. Usually, by this point in the evening, I've, I've shut her down for the night, but kept yeah. it on for this because, you know, I need the extra yeah extra mojo. For, for those who don't know by now, uh, we ha- we've released some merch. Uh, so we got some t-shirts, we got some hoodies, we got some stickers, uh, so go check out, uh, we also kind of have a fancy new landing page, so you can go to signaltonoisepodcast.com and, uh, and check out all that good stuff. Um, also use promo code. There's a, there's a picture of Kyle. The picture of there. Kyle. That's the most important thing. Uh, if you use promo code tacos, you'll get 20% off. So there go there. There's no excuse, you know, Christmas shopping is around the corner. Uh, you know, cover up your loved ones is it, with. Is it all caps tacos? Um, all caps tacos? I don't. I don't think it matters. If if uh, if you run into an issue, you know, message us. But uh, it it should be, uh, t- you know, it, cap shouldn't matter. Well then, uh, we have it. So, uh, who's our guest this evening, man? I'm pretty stoked about this. Yeah. So, uh, we have Ken Newman, uh, currently uh, front of house engineer for Barry Manilow. Uh, has been doing that for many years. Uh, other artists like Julian Glacis, Anita Baker um liza minnelli but you know it, it's like again who's who list uh some corporate stuff mixed in there too so what we, we we could jump into that but um ken welcome to the show thanks thanks for having me it's, it's a you know it's a honor to be on your show i've listened to a few of your podcasts and there's some great people talking about great stuff on here you guys are great this is like the candy shop for me you know i'm <laughs> yeah. the kid in the candy shop on this so. uh-huh. <laughs> it, it's it's a terribly kept secret but there's you know the motivation for this show is i want to talk to cool people <laughs> that's the so whole great. that's it man <laughs> so great fantastic so you said, uh, go ahead go ahead chris go ahead no, I, no, I just wanted to say like so this i think uh, as uh, in terms of a guest, I mean, for those who don't know, we we don't typically prepare very much for episodes, and that may show, it may not show. I'm not sure how you might take that, uh, you know, statement. Um, but often, um, if we do prepare, it's a little bit. Ken, you were the first person to send me like a dissertation of of your career before coming on. It was like a six page PDF plus your resume, and a bunch of pictures. I greatly appreciate that. <laughs> well, I you know I I was a Boy Scout. I like to be prepared, <laughs> and. and, and uh, you know, it's not like we have a lot of whole, whole lot of other things going on these days. So I wanted you to have my background. I, you know, after listening to the other interviews with other guys, I was like, hmm, what would I do if I if they ever asked me to be on their show? I think I would want to give them some background so they know what to ask me about. You know, <laughs> that's, so that's what, awesome. that's what I did. That's like awesome. Cool. I mean, yeah, I, I, there, it's going to take it's going to take probably a three four part episode to get to all this, but that's all good. It's all it's you all. You don't good. have to get to all of it. Just get the the good stuff. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to. I want to jump in on. You sent us a couple of photos, uh-huh. um, and I think Chris, maybe we can get some of these up on the on the episode. Of course, page. of course. Um, there is a photo called Vocal Mixer. Yeah, and uh, it's a really old school looking thing with some badass knobs, and it's just got the names 
uh, of the artist, like yeah. just tattooed yeah, right on the surface. Yeah, man. Right, let's right? Uh, tell us about yeah, that. That's tell, cool. Well, that okay. So that's funny. You should ask that first. But that is okay. So in the seven in the early seventies, when I got started doing this stuff, one of the things I wanted to do was record bands. Right. So um, I couldn't afford, you know, a real. There weren't many real consoles. It wasn't like you could go to the store and buy a Mackie mixer at that time. There wasn't Tapco mixers. There wasn't anything. The closest thing to that was a. You know, an a- Ampex AM10 was a, a mixer that, you know, had a few channels or maybe a Shure uh, M67 or something. But anyway, the point is I, I found this this line of uh, mixers that I could buy that I could afford. It was called Gately Pro Kit. And I don't know if you're familiar with that because um, that Gately is based in the Philadelphia area, I think, somewhere in Pennsylvania anyway. So anyway, so, so my friend uh, had this studio. Long story short, anyway, the, the point is I, I – um, I got this Gately Pro Kit mixer. It was a six-channel mixer, six in, two out, uh, three, you know, two space. Had six big knobs, a bunch of switches, and a couple meters. Real basic, no EQ, no no pan pots, pretty much nothing. And then, uh, since I was into electronics and stuff, I said, "Well, I'm going to just copy these circuits and make my own mixers, right?" <laughs> so I so I copied the circuits that were in there. I, I broke it down into mic preamp and summing amp and line driver, and that was essentially all you needed to make a mixer was uh, those three elements, right? You get as many mic preamps as you wanted channels. You get as many, you know, get a summing mixer with as many inputs as the number of channels. And then you have a line driver for each output. So uh, I was working for this band and, you know, I was kind of like, I don't even know if I was working for them yet, but I was connected with this one band and they had their, their sound system at the time consisted of a drum PA and a vocal PA. And the drum PA was like, some kind of sun concert series head uh, power, you know, plugged into a Macintosh 40 amp power amp or something. Uh, for, wait, 40 watt power amp, I should say. Sorry, I'm so screwed up. Uh, anyway, they they were really going for, they wanted to get quality. So they got some kind of Macintosh something or other and plugged their sun thing into the that and then plugged that into their two speakers for the drum PA. And then they had another sun something or other for the vocals and i was like oh man we need to improve this so let's get a higher quality mixer for the vocals so that's what that mixer is is they said well there's four of us plus we'll have a spare channel for whatever and we'll have a five channel mixer and we'll have a monitor send and we'll have an eq and we'll have uh an output for the pa and that output will just power into our sun power amp section and then it'll, it'll sound better than our sun mixer did and i was and i was like yeah i can make that so that's what that is that you're looking at that's the um my you know recreation of the gately pro kit uh mixer all into one unit and uh it, it was just volume and then it had two switches let's see gain and high pass right and a fixed high pass but it had an on off switch for that and then it had a bass and treble control and that's what I put together in there in that little box for them to to have their vocal mixer. And, and that lasted a pretty long time because even later when we got, when I ended up working for them and we ended up getting uh, a bigger PA system for them that everything ran through and we, you know, we're like, Oh, we need a console, but you couldn't buy a console. So he's like, we caught, co- we cobbled together like that mixer plus another mixer that I made, plus another mixer that we had of some sort. And it gave us maybe 20 channels total. And so we cobbled it together and that was what our PA was for many years. Yeah. I just, I love, I love that. And I, I so lament 
this is a silly thing to lament, right? But I'm I'm using the word lament very intently here. Uh, like like that, you know, we've sort of by and large our our field has lost that element of, uh, you know, I can't just go and buy this thing off the shelf. Like if you wanted it, you had to make it. And yeah. like, so Home you know, brew, saying you know? yeah, yeah. And so, so this whole debate that you know Chris likes stirring up stuff on on our Facebook group, uh, and this whole <laughs> idea of like you know should we call ourselves engineers like. 40 yeah. years ago, that wasn't even a discussion. Like, of course, like, you know, I remember my first show that on a digital desk, I thought I was hot shit showing up with the show file that I had pre-built. Sure. You're like showing up with a fucking console that you built. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. That's, yeah. that's right. like, you can't. Even, yeah. Up? Well, that's what we had to do. That's what we had to do. That was, <laughs> that's all there was because there was no, you couldn't go to the store and buy this stuff. It was like, you know, if you looked at the, what was available in the music store then versus what was available in say 2010, it's an incredible difference an absolutely incredible difference of what's available, you know? And so it was, you had to just go, you know, make what you could. I could tell you some stories about some of the things that people made and some of the incredible things that people made. I remember, uh, you know, Tycho Bray, you don't know if you ever heard of the sound company Tycho Bray, but they had this little mixing console that they actually made because nobody was making a mixing console that was good. But it was this little tiny mixing console that sounded amazing and just small and all knobs, no no slide faders. And it was all rotary and it was just really solid little mixer that they built. And, you know, the, I don't know if you rem- you know this, but like Shoko, when Shoko had uh, mixers in that day, they were basically what, three or four space, six channel mixers that Shoko made. And they were, I don't know what they were even made from, but they might've been made from scratch. They might've been from modules that were available at the time or something. But, you know, people would cobble together things because they had to, because there wasn't anywhere near what you have available these days, you know? Yeah, that's that's so funny. I, I had this uh, book by uh, Douglas Self, who's a, uh, he's a British circuit designer, designed uh some consoles for Neve and Soundcraft and this dude just knows what he's doing like yeah. you know, super high level, you know? And um, there's, there's like three chapters in there on, you know, summing buses and uh-huh. just, you know, how to, how to, you know, where the resistor should be and why the switches should be and then how to get rid of the capacitive crosstalk in this way. And I'm just like, this is a black hole, man. It's unbelievable yeah, oh, yeah. that, you know, like that this, we just, yeah. we take like a mute button for granted. Yeah, we I'm like, t- this take all this stuff for granted. Yeah. Oh my it's God. Yeah. so crazy. Yeah. So I, yeah. In, even though I'm not a, a electrical engineer uh, by any stretch, I I enjoy reading that stuff because it really gives me such a respect for that type of work and, the, oh, and how intent the design is. It's great. Man. It's amazing. The, so so a little side story on my Gately ProKit mixer. So I also sent a mixer. I mean a picture of the recording setup that I had, which was the Gately mixer, and then right above that, there's a one U panel that has six knobs on it and then above that there's a 2u uh, unit that they sold as the eq you could insert into the mixer and so i bought the mixer you know as a kit you could you could build this kit and uh that was easy enough and then you could buy the eq and you could build that kit and that was easy enough but then all that it had in the mixer was you could either assign each channel to left or to right or to both. That was it with switches, right? So I was like, ah, I don't want to left or right or both. I want to, you know, pan pot. I need a pan pot to assign that signal somewhere. So I 
don't know how I did it, but you know, I was what, 16 years old or something. I figured out how, you know, somebody taught me how to build a pan pot circuit. So I built a bunch of pan pot circuits and that's what that middle panel is. That one new oh, panel. The one, the one that's extruded like a little further out than the rest of it. Yeah. Because it wasn't part of the, they didn't build it. It was just a panel that I've got, you know, that's a stainless amazing. steel panel. Anyway. So I made this pan pot, pan pot uh, thing and I inserted it, inserted it in the mixer and away it went and I had panning. It's amazing. I mean, I think back that, that I was 16 years old doing this stuff. I think, oh my God, what? Really? I did that? It's pretty amazing. I think I was 16 years old. I think I was rebelling against the fact that I had to separate the whites and the colors before I did the laundry. <laughs> I think that's where I was at. So you probably, yeah, I didn't, get, I didn't get to little. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My parents were, I mean, my father was, he, he had electronic parts stores. And so I was all about electronics and technology and stuff. And he, you know, he got me hooked on, technology and wanting to have the latest greatest thing in the early 60s when you know like say oh cassette recorders first came out i remember it was like oh wow look at this is a cassette recorder look at this and it was just oh yeah i gotta have that and then the latest one came out oh i gotta have that it's even better you know (laughs) and so my father got me into that stuff and then and of course he always taught me stuff about electronics and soldering and circuitry and stuff and so that's why it just happened Man, that's awesome. That's, yeah, and yeah. it's, you know, I, I know it's not like a completely lost art yet, but I mean, it's just, I think, uh, you know, the average person who does live sound reinforcement now has just, you know, no concept of the high level of stuff that goes into that. So it's always mm. interesting to hear about it, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's really, you know, so just another silly side story also was, so the band, uh, the band that I ended up working for, they said, well, we need a console. So I was like, well, I can just take that, what I did with those five channels and just make a 20 channel version of that. Right. And so I said, but you know, in order to do it like practically, we should do, you know, strips like aluminum faceplates that are the, uh, you know, the width of a channel and uh, knobs and all this stuff and have sends on it and all kinds of things we were going to do. And I got all the parts and I got the parts from my father's company. It was all reasonably priced and everything. And the drummer in the band was a machinist on the side. So he made all the face plates and everything. And I was supposed to build this console and I never actually built the console was the point. Oh. We just, I just got sidetracked on, you know, other things. Me neither, things. Ken. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, I had, but, but recently I went in the garage and found all those parts and I have a whole box of parts that I had to get put together for that console and that never got built pretty crazy oh but but what i did do here's an interesting side story also what i did do is i took one of the mic preamps this is really goofy took one of the mic preamps and maybe a line driver or something real simple circuitry but i just gained the crap out of it so that it was really had a lot of gain and i put a um you know it inherently it's got a high impedance input it's you have to put a transformer on the front of it to have it be a low low impedance input so i i let the guitar player use it as a preamp for his guitar and he loved it the lead guitar player in the band and so he had this you know super duper preamp that was based on uh, chips instead of tubes but he really liked the distortion that it did and how much gain it had and all that kind of stuff and he used that for years as his front end for his guitar rig and it was just based on those same circuits that i stole from gately pro kit pretty it's weird funny. Right? He, he probably didn't realize he was ahead of his time in terms uh, of, of, no. of, of guitars <laughs> no you should, yeah i did a lot of things for the for the uh guitars uh in that band you know like uh, i don't know if i say any of those pictures but i made uh effects racks and those effects racks were basically rack mounting any of their pedal effects and then make i made a power supply that was super clean so it wouldn't hum and uh, powered it all you know from ac and then they switched in and out with relays was the only drawback because the relays were kind of noisy uh, in terms of, you know, on the signal path, but the, uh, but the 
principle was there. They had a remote control with a foot switch. And all, the, all the foot switch really did was turn on the relay. The relay actually switched the signal. And I had a whole rack. Each guitar player had a rack of effects that I built. You know, I just basically took their pedal effects, put it in a rack mount case, got, gave it the, um, the connectors it needed for the DC input and for the switching. And away we went. It was pretty wild, pretty different in its time. Man. It's uh, it's fascinating. <laughs> it was crazy. It was crazy stuff to do. When I think back on stuff I did, I mean, I took, I, I also got into woodworking a slight bit, and you know, nothing like Will Miller, but you know, I mean, but I took them, their Marshall cabinets, I sanded them all down. They were just naked, and then I put, uh, you know, that grill, the grill that Mesa Boogie uses. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called wicker cane fabric or material or something. Anyway, I put that on the grill of the Marshall cabinets, and so we had these Marshall cabinets that looked like big Mesa Boogies, and but the, and I, you know, they were very cool looking and kind of way ahead of their time because it was before Mesa Boogie was doing that. Wow. So, but we thought of that first and uh, had our cabinets. And then of course the, the, uh, let's see, the bummer was that we were doing a little tour, well, a little promotional tour and our whole truck got stolen. So all that equipment that I had built went, went away. It just got all stolen. So anyway, but it was fun to build all that kind of stuff from scratch. So do you remember when you like finally got on a, you know, an actual manufactured mixing console like, and what that was like, that, that adjustment <laughs> for you? <laughs> uh, manufactured mixing console. Yeah, that's a good question uh, because I'm trying to think what that would have been. I guess one of the first manufactured mixing consoles I used was the Sun mixing console that, um, that my boss at the sound company bought. And it was maybe... I don't know how many channels would it have been maybe 16 or 24 channels and oh man it was so cool because it had faders and it had knobs and it actually worked and it was one box and it was you know it was a revolutionary thing to you know to be able to just plug things into a box and have the sound come out and it was clean and everything that was that was a real cool thing um but then years later, the biggest step, the biggest improvement I remember in live sound was when Yamaha came out with the PM1000. That was like, you know, mind blowing because it's like, oh, look, we can all have access to this same console and it's got all these features on it. It's got 16 channels and it's got two, two aux stands and it's got it's got faders and it's got everything you want, man. It's great. It's ready to go. And so that was a major, you know. Uh, improvement in the console market at the time. And it was made for live sound too. The thing was we were using things that weren't made for live sound uh, typically. Uh, and it was, it was really kind of challenging to make stuff work sometimes. So you gotta be like, you, when you're sitting in front of house, like, you know, in 2019 and you, with your SD nine or your SD seven or your SD, whatever in front of uh-huh. you. Yeah. I, you, there's got to be a little bit of like looking over your shoulder going like, holy shit, man, this is just so oh, far yeah. ahead. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the capabilities, it's like it, I liken it to uh, think about, you know, the when those guys went to the moon and they used this computer that was in their spacecraft and it was like it was nothing compared to what we have now. And, it, you know, we can do what they uh, what they had in their computer, we could do that with one quarter of our telephone probably. Right. And so it's this kind of the same thing. It's like, we have come so far technologically speaking, it's amazing. And I just got to pinch myself sometimes when I see that I can do so many things with the mixing console or with the sound system, it's just incredible what, it, what we've achieved. So I'm, I'm curious, I trying to put two and two together here in that, how you ended up a majority of your career is around Barry, Barry Manilow, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, and but then hearing your backstory, which we haven't really got to yet, um, 
is uh, you spent a good bit of your early portion of your career in Atlantic City in you know in, in a casino environment. Um, did did what did did that did that lead ultimately to that type of style act, or was there a different path that got you there? Well, yeah, the, I mean, my first part of my career was like whatever. I just loved audio and I loved recording and doing live sound and recording bands and different things with audio. And, and it was mostly bands, you know, rock bands. Uh, and, but you know, I recorded the school band or recorded a little things here and there, but mostly rock bands. And then when I had the opportunity, uh, to go to Atlantic city and, I, I had this phone call with uh, with Al Siniscal, the owner of A1 Audio at the time. And I, he said, oh, yeah, we have a, a, a job here. They have a showroom and they need a sound guy for the showroom. I'm thinking, what's a showroom? Like what? They sell cars and you know, <laughs> sell cars in a casino. I don't get a showroom. OK, I'll, I'll, you know what, Al? I'll come down and you can show it to me. OK, so I went down there to Atlantic City and that changed my life, really, because that was like my change from, you know, little kid doing rock bands and experimenting with this and that to like, Hey, I'm really working a real job and I'm really getting paid real money to do what I've always loved doing anyway. And I don't even have to work that hard because it's adult contemporary artists instead of these rock bands that are so overly loud. And I really got to, I'm really challenged. I'm hardly challenged from a sound standpoint. It's just doing the whole job. That's the only challenge uh, here doing the adult contemporary artists. And so that was when my, I made that shift from rock bands to adult contemporary artists was when I got that opportunity to go work in Atlantic City. And then it was just kind of a natural progression to stay with adult contemporary artists uh, after working in Atlantic City for a few years with all adult contemporary artists. And then um, when I ended up on back on the road, it was with an adult contemporary kind of an actress artist, Shirley MacLaine. And one thing led to another and I'm in the A1 Audio Hollywood click and I'm just working for whoever they have coming through their doors. And primarily their acts were adult contemporary artists at the time. And so it was just kind of a natural prog progression to stay in that adult contemporary vein. And fact, frankly, the um, biggest artist that they had uh, in the early 80s was Barry Manilow. He was like the biggest artist on the A1 Audio roster. So it was like, oh, maybe someday I'll get to work for the big boys, you know, with <laughs> a, a big Barry Manilow tour. And so eventually I did. And I worked towards that. I mean, I knew all the people that were always working on the Mar Barry Manilow tour. They were all friends of mine and stuff. And um, I stayed in touch with all them. And I worked for Paul Anka for a while. And I worked for different artists that were connected with a one audio and then eventually landed the Barry metal gig. And it was like a major step, even though it was way beyond his like sort of heyday, his heyday had been, you know, 10, 15 years earlier. So jump, jumping back to the casino for a second. Uh, yeah. You mentioned Frank Sinatra. Uh, right. So uh, did you mix that show or uh, no, no. That, well, so, so that was a big deal. Like when they hired me, they were like, well, the, the casino management was like, well, we got to have a good sound guy because we got Frank Sinatra coming in and he needs to have good sound people. And it wasn't that he need, he needed this good sound people. He had his own guy, but he needed to know that we had a good sound system and that we were going to support him and everything that we did. So we had to uh, improve the sound system in the room a bit just to get him to play there. And, um, and then he brought in uh, his guy, Bob Kiernan was his name. And Bob did uh, everything for him. He called the lights, he did the sound, and he just made it all happen. He was kind of like production manager, sound guy, lighting guy. And uh, 
it was, you know, it was a pretty big deal because Frank Sinatra was a pretty big deal. And that was his return to Atlantic City after not having been there for a long time. And, a, and an interesting bookend to that is you, you had a footnote here is that you did the sound for the funeral of Frank yeah, Sinatra. Yeah, so like, yeah, the la- his last gig, you know. So, yeah, so so I got to be, you know, over the course of years working with Paul Anka and different people, um, I got to be friends with uh, Hank Catanio. Uh, and Hank Catenio trusted me to do a good job. And in fact, that's who hired me for the Liza Minnelli gig. And Hank Catenio was uh, Sinatra's uh, production manager for the last, I don't know what, 10, 15, 20 years of his career. So when he passed away, Hank called me or Hank called A1 or something and, and said, hey, we need Newman to do the sound at the funeral. Is he available? And so I was doing a, a corporate gig at the time, but I was just I came home the day before the funeral. I said, okay, I'm available. I'll do the funeral. Sure. (laughs) So we did the sound for the Frank Sinatra funeral. It was kind of a notorious event. Well, and, and like what kind of acts were performing? uh, (laughs) Well, just, he had, I mean, they had his trio. It wasn't like performances. His trio played sort of walk-in music. And the big deal was that uh, I had to play a, you know, song, play a, play a recording of a song from a CD and there was a sound system and I had to, oh, and I had to record the whole service too. So I got the, I tapped into the church's sound system and I recorded it on the DAT machine. And, um, and then, uh, at the right time I had to play this song, uh, and who knew what was the right time. I was just like following along <laughs> in the program. There wasn't any stage manager or anything like that saying, okay, go. It was just, okay, I think we're at the right point. Okay. I'm hitting play. Here we go. And sure enough, it was the right time because, uh, you know, it was even mentioned in the USA today article about the funeral that not a dry eye in the house when that song was played. So hmm. I did good, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh and you know, the other interesting thing about, um, funerals or memorials is you did another rather large memorial as well with uh steve jobs well yeah i I worked on it yeah it wasn't like i had a pivotal role in it but i worked on it i know but i mean like these are two like iconic people in history (laughs) yeah that you were there at a a interesting time of 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 their well i guess the end of their career yeah exactly well so the interesting thing (laughs) about i didn't mean that morbidly i mean i know (laughs) we're talking about death here but you know (laughs) sinatra dead you know so yeah (laughs) that's what i always tell people but but but, uh, but yeah, the Steve Jobs memorials were pretty spectacular. I mean, you know, think about it. I mean, he was a very, you know, in, in, important guy in a lot of people's lives. And so they had two memorials and Rich Alverson is the or was the guy that did all the audio for all Apple events for many years. And so he was the guy that we were all, you know, taking care of like uh, he was the the sound guy and he, his normal crew was not available because they were all booked and it was this was on short notice because who knew he was going to die right so um so he uh what he wasn't able to get his normal people so i f- kind of filled in for his one of his normal people and um and uh, did the this huge setup outdoors at the apple campus and uh they had uh cold play playing they had um nora jones playing and they had I can't remember who else, but somebody else played. And, um, and then Tim, of course, the, the CEO spoke and it was just a regular, uh, regular memorial. It was really good, but it was huge because it was in such a large area. And, uh, it was, it was a, a very cool event, uh, as events go. And, but even more interesting was the event at the church at, um, at Stanford university. 
um, because it was a invited only, but you know, like what, 50 people maybe at this church uh, for another memorial for Steve Jobs, a more private one. And oh gosh, I hope I didn't uh, sign an NDA or anything, but if I did, here goes. <laughs> anyway, so they had, they had, uh, they had Yo-Yo Ma playing and he oh, was nice. super cool, right? Super cool guy. And then they had um, basically U2 was uh, The Edge and uh, Bono were there. And it was, it, the interesting thing about that was that uh, uh, The Edge played through a little Apple, some kind of you know, stereo system, a little tabletop stereo system as kind of a tribute to uh, Steve. So he played his guitar through this goofy little speaker system that was meant for home stereo use. But it was, it was like, you know, having a little mini U2 concert at this memorial is pretty cool. That is cool. I, we've talked a lot about, um, on this show, we've talked a lot about people who work with artists for an extended period of time and, you know, how that kind of relationship develops and the way that the artist comes to rely on you for certain things and how that dialogue happens. And I'd, I'd love to hear about that, you know, from your perspective. Um, yeah. You know, there's just a lot to talk about there. Well, I, yeah. And I, 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 I tend to prefer those kind of gigs where you can really sink your teeth into working for one artist. Uh, like I worked for Paul Anka for many years, I worked for Shirley, Shirley McLean for many years. I worked for uh, Barry Manilow now for many years on and off. And, I I like that kind of situation because you can really really wrap your your head around exactly what where they want to be and uh, where they want the the sound of their show to be and so you you have this like unwritten communication between you and the artist that just you know it works so effectively when you've been with them for so long there the uh, uh, a thing was spoken to me a few years ago. One sound guy said, you know, there's two kinds of sound gigs. One where you get to do sound and you make it sound good. And then the artist knows that it's going to sound good. And then there's the other kind of gig where the artist tells you how they want it to sound. And they, they're always telling you or reminding you, don't forget this and don't forget that. And this needs to sound this way. And this needs to sound that way. Well, the Manilow gig is that way. It's totally like, he's all over it. He, he comes out and, you know, his, his time is most spent away from the stage during a sound check or a rehearsal where he's listening to what I'm doing and making sure that he, I'm bringing a, the band across in the way that he wants it to be brought across. Because after all, he's, a music guy. He's not a, he likes to think of himself as not a performer and not a singer. He's just a music arranger and that's mm. how, where he comes from. So he wants to make sure that that arrangement is exactly heard the way he wants it to be heard. And so it's my job to try to emulate that even when I put his vocal on top of that. So it's, it's a very interesting thing. And, and you know, there we've had, <laughs> you know, he's stood or sat next to me for so many hours over these years. Uh, at some point I feel like he trusts me and other points I feel like he doesn't trust me. It's really, you know, interesting. It depends on his, you know, which song it is or which version of which song he just, he'll sometimes he'll say, come on, you never get this right. Other times he'll go, yeah, that's amazing. You know, it just, but more often than not, he has confidence that uh, I'm going to do the right thing. And by the, by the right thing, I mean what he wants, because frankly, if I was, just doing sound for his show, it wouldn't sound quite the same as the way he wants it to sound. It would be a bit different. So, so d- dig into that for a minute. So, 
what what was it like when you first came to him though in trying <laughs> to you you obviously probably had your style like any other engineer has right. did you know going into it that you had to uh set aside your approach and you were going for his or, or is that what well, yeah you know, i like- mean that's that's the way i for i've sort of always uh approached gigs i mean the way i approach gigs is i want to know what the artist wants me to make them sound like uh you know when i had a house gig and i was just working for the house i would just do it do generic sound and make it sound good and if they had a request i would comply with the request but it was more like i work for the house so i'm just going to make it sound good and everybody's happy and but working like the 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 uh, the thing that i remember from the first couple of weeks of working with barry manilow was that uh we were in the rehearsal studio and like a, a sound stage with you know full production rehearsals and full sound system and everything and he would just sit next to me and just oh you know got to do this you got to do that and i remember hearing little bits and pieces from friends of mine that had worked for him previously about what he wants when he asks for a certain thing so i sort of had an idea of what to expect and one of those things was that on the previous tour one of my friends told me that the previous sound guy, uh, you know, would just make minor changes and he didn't want minor, minor changes. He wanted to hear that. Like if he said, you know, I need more backbeat, he want boom, you know, put it in your face for a second and then back it off from that. Give me a little too much and then back it off. Right. And so I knew that going in that I need to, he needs to know that I'm in, in sync with him. If he says, I want more backbeat, you better hear backbeat within the next two beats or you're out of luck, you know? So, um, so anyway, so the 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 when I really got it in quotes, what where he was coming from was when he was doing this one song, and he was focusing on the background vocals, and he's like, ah, oh, the background vocals are so dry, and believe me, they were not dry, right? <laughs> but he's you know, they had lots of reverb on them, right? So I just kept cranking up that reverb on the background vocals, cranking up, and when it got to the point where it was so like, oh my god, it's so wet, I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, yeah, it's great. And that's when the light light bulb went off on my head and I realized something that I still continue, continue to believe is true to this day. And that is that this gig is about the reverb. It's about using the proper reverb at the proper time and the proper amounts of it. And by proper, I mean what he wants, right? So he likes at sometimes lots of reverb on things compared to what other people would want. And reverb is what, what he calls the magic because when I, if I play him, if I, you know, he's standing next to me and the band's playing and I have no reverb on anything. He's like, Oh my God, it sounds like shit. But then, <laughs> but then he says, Oh, where's the magic? And I just start dialing in more reverb. He's like, yeah, there you go. You know, and <laughs> just, it's more, you know, it's not, gen, gen, and you know, there's different, I have many different reverb units. So there's different kinds of reverb on each thing, each part of the band and the singers, and stuff but the point is reverb good no reverb bad you know (laughs) so that's what i learned very quickly in that in that rehearsal and that was when that light went off over my head for him and i said okay i gotta really focus on making sure that i take it to where i would normally put it and then add another 20 percent. then he's going to be happy you know with the reverb and that's proven to be true for a long time with the with the reverb being such a critical part, how much did you have to chase that from venue to venue in the way that the venue treated things and how he perceived what you were doing versus what the venue was spitting back at him? 
Yeah, well, that's uh, that's a good question because uh, it varies. Sometimes I can just say, well, that's that's what it's going to be, and that's you know, sure. But so, like sometimes we'll get in a real dead room, like a, a theater or something. He'll go, just put more reverb and everything, and so. I kind of do that. I just like increase the return levels because, you know, I've got presets. I've got scenes that are already stored with all these, uh, you know, proper ratios of reverb to dry. And so I just go, okay, it needs to be more wet in this room. So I'm going to just increase my returns, which are recall safe anyway. And so I'll just increase all my returns a little bit in this room because it's, it's not doing anything for us at all. It's not helping us like the, the arenas are what he'd love to play all arenas because they have that, that sound to them that uh or most of them do anyway that that you know embellish the sound of the band and the sound of his voice to make it more exciting as opposed to like theaters where it just you know drops off when it comes out of the speakers it just dies well, what about so, outdoor shows like I mean, what was that what was that like for him doing outdoors well he he just again the same same kind of thing as the theater he just likes to make sure i have enough so that it's not dry he just dry is bad so if it's if it sounds dry you know if it sounds dry or in, in, too much in your face it's just bad i mean to, to take it even a step further when i give him a recording of the show if i ever give him a board mix oh man that is like the worst thing that i could ever do because it's dry it's right off the board you know even though it's got all the reverbs dialed into it and everything he much prefers in fact insists uh, that it be the microphone. He wants to hear a microphone of the room. He'd much rather hear somebody's cell phone recording of the show than my board mix any day, you know, just because, and, and, and I gotta, I gotta agree to a point because if I take a, a, a mix of his, like, like say a song that, you know, and it's, remember he, he very much, separates live and recorded so his recordings don't indicate this at all like if you get you buy a record of his he has normal amounts of reverb it sounds nice it sounds beautiful it's really you know but he knows that live it's got to sound a certain way in order to get that point across and get that excitement going with the audience so it's a totally different situation for him than recorded but anyway uh what i've done you know sometimes is taken a full two-track mix of whatever the music is and just put that through a reverb unit and just dial in a little bit of reverb, like, you know, 20% or 10% or something, whatever it is to just give it a little life. And I'll tell you, that's the sound that he likes. And that's the sound that turns him on. He thinks without that 10% of reverb mixed in there, it's, it's, you know, horrible. And with that 10% of reverb mixed in there, it's, it's wonderful. So it's the difference between night and day for him. And, and, you could go on and on with the all the different parts of the mix that he has preferences to uh, preferences about also, but the reverb is one of the main things that really gets him going. That's really interesting. So I guess you know, do you have a do you have a, a handy handy uh, reverb unit of choice, or you just use whatever's <laughs> on the desk? Oh no, no, no! I I have a whole rack that I own of of, <laughs> of stuff. And here, interesting story about that is that so I, you know I don't know if you read in the in my story, but you know I worked for him from ninety two to like two thousand and two or something like that. And during over the course of that time, we each tour I would maybe try a new set of reverb units like the first tour i used a bunch of pcm 70s and then i went oh well you know this would sound better if i had that and so i you know fine-tuned it over the years and i don't know what i ended up with but uh i know vocal reverb wise i ended up with a tcm 5000 uh, towards the end of that 2002 era right and so i had a vocal m5000 for vocals m5000 for band reverb overall kind of strings and stuff 
And then I had, uh, oh, I had a 224XL for drum reverb and I had certain things for certain, you know, sound, uh, for certain parts of the band, right? And I had about six things and I, and I had a, uh, H3000 harmonizer for doubling his voice and stuff. <clears throat> and I had certain devices that I liked for certain functions that seemed to suit what he was asking for. Right. And that evolved over years. And then, you know, I stopped working for him. Right. So then I go back to work for him. I'm like, Oh, what should I do? I, I have all my settings on a floppy disk from 2002. So I should probably, I should probably get a, an M5000 and put that floppy disk in there and recall those settings because I know they worked in 2002. They will definitely work in 2012 the same way. And so I got myself an M5000 that had a floppy drive that actually worked. And I put those sounds in and sure enough, it worked. It was great. And so I still use that M5000 with those same settings that I established probably in 1997 or something. I still use it these days because it works. You know, I've added, you know, add a little bit of, uh, add a little bit of other units also like Lexicon PCM81 or something and all these effects units that I have in the rack. And I graduated from an H3000 to a uh, Eclipse instead of the H3000 because I need some space in the rack. And, um, and I used some TCM, I think I have, yeah, M2000 for the background vocals because it has like that double feet, you know, it has two effects in one. You can have a double and a reverb in one that works great for the background vocals. And I, since a 224XL wasn't very friendly anymore, I said, well, how about, uh, I'll try this TCM1. And of all things, that TCM1 has been my drum reverb for a few years now. And it's been really good for that, even though it's a little, pardon the expression, but a piece of junk, you know, it's a little simple <laughs> little reverb unit, but it really sounds good for the kind of drum reverb that he wants to hear. And that drum reverb is key to a lot of his songs. He really strongly, you know, needs that. So anyway, I have this whole rack of all these effects. And then I also have some plugins that I use that embellish it even more. So, you know, some waves, uh, I forget what it's called, but the, that H ver H reverb, with a 224XL sound in there. And I use that for some more vocal reverb or something. Anyway, more reverb, better, more different kinds of reverbs, better, <laughs> you know? So it's all about having the reverbs available. And then if he uh, asks, for, asks for more or less of it, I can always trim it to what he wants. But it's a matter of knowing that it's got to be there to start with. A dry mix for him is just not good. So I'm I'm curious. So with someone you've been with for so long, who is that critical of you know what what the result is, and given the amount of dialogue you guys have probably had, um, has there been any level of technical talk, or is it, it for still for this amount of time, it's still all uh, you know cloud talk and speak in terms of you know uh, fluffy. I want it more wet. Like at any point, have you ever talked about hey? when I do this much pre-delay, you kind of get this result. And so is this more, you know, like has it been in that well, direction? Yeah. He, he, uh, of all the artists that I've ever worked for, he is the most tuned in to the technical side of things of anybody that I've ever worked for. Right. And that's because he's spent all those years in the studio recording all these songs back in the seventies and eighties. Right. And he worked with an engineer for the most part named Michael Delug and Michael Delug, apparently, you know, got him going on all these terms and stuff. And he knows pre-delay and he knows um, some other sound, some other, you know, terms that work really well. And then he has just some generic terms. And But he's not one of those artists that says, oh, I need it to be more green or I need it to be more, uh, you know, more something that's very hard to, hard to, 
figure out what they're what they mean. He really talks in terms that work for me. And that and that, by the way, is I think that is key to a relationship between a mixer and an artist is that they talk the same language. In other words, that's what, a large part of the reason why I have that gig is because he can say something to me and I go, oh, yeah, got it. And I'm all over it and I do it. And it, it, it can be something abstract if he feels like being abstract. And I still get it because we have that communication level. And that's what's key. In other words, I might, he might be the only artist that I could ever do that with because I know what he's talking about. But at the same time, somebody new comes along and he says, Oh, I want some more magic. They'll go magic. What's magic? (laughs) You know, what's magic, you know, but, uh, but I was taught things early on with some of the basic terms that he uses and what he means. And uh, I've run with it and it's worked really well. Yeah, I mean that I I've only had that one experience with an artist that when I was out with Tears for Fears. Similarly, when you know I was doing monitors, they would ask like they would literally say like, "Hey, can I get a little less five hundred on my guitar? Can you oh, pan, wow. you know, can you pan this you know a couple of dB, dB to the left and stuff like that?" Wow. Like, I mean they they were very specific, and I think similarly in terms of creating an album like Barry, like they were very involved with their albums uh, mm-hmm. and, and creating it, everything from the Sonic, you know, to the, to the, to the, um, the mixing aspect of it. So yes, they were very technical. And the great thing about it, there's no guesswork, you know, it's not, you know, you, you know where you stand. You've either, you, you've either yeah. accomplished what they've asked or you haven't, you know, yeah, like, as opposed to, as opposed to when I worked for Anita Baker, who was self proclaimed self, proclaimed the crazy lady and she would you know try to call out frequencies but she's way off and who knows what she's who's knows what news what she's hearing and she would say oh less 500 you know less, oh and then you know when i worked for tony orlando he would do a similar thing oh you got too much 250 over here oh my god really come on you know it was just and they don't know what they're talking about really and uh, you know so if you do what they say it can be tragic but if you do what you think they mean then you can be successful but uh, yeah that can be that that sounds like a really good gig if they really know what they're talking about and they really you know can relate it to you correctly that's amazing but i just feel like with barry anyway we have a language i know his language he knows my language we talk to each other in a way that uh, we communicate really well about what he's looking to you know get across to the audience i think you know one one thing that uh we've talked a little bit about on this show in the context of monitors right and and you know kyle always says miss cleo like there's a little bit of kind of mind reading involved there um, uh-huh, yeah you know, do you give them what they're asking for or do you give them what what they think they're asking for right um and uh you know i i work with a group here i've got six people on stage right and so i'm doing their monitors for front of house and so there's a lot of um you know dialogue that has to happen there and what's interesting is different members of the band have different levels of technical and audio knowledge right so sometimes i'll have to have the same conversation at four different ways you know just right, to, right. to try to so, so I think, thing. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I like a lot of that um that's an important idea about you know it's not only about what am i trying to communicate it but how how can i communicate in a way that makes sense to the person i'm talking to and and finding that uh avenue with each different artist you know i right, think that's right. a that's a skill that uh can if you don't have that ability that can sink an otherwise very good mixer you know, oh yeah for that. sure yeah, for sure. Because if you you're not communicating or you're not getting what they're talking about, uh, it's can be tragic. Yeah. Chris Leonard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, talk about some of the back to the kind of the corporate stuff. What you know, um, I find um, you know it, it's not. 
I don't know, I don't find it common of people who have done the caliber of rock and roll work that you've done to have done extensive corporate work as well. And then also you've done, you know, installation, um, consultation stuff as well. Um, what, what was, uh, was it out of necessity going to the corporate or something you wanted to do? How, how did, how did that come about? Well, yeah. So back in the early nineties, I was, uh, working for Barry Manilow and whoever else. And then my friend Harold Blumberg said, Hey, you know, you ought to try doing corporates. I bet you would be good at doing corporates. And I was like, really? And I don't know if you know Harold, but he's a very techie wizardry kind of genius kind of guy. And I was like, really? You think I would do that? And he's like, yeah, let's put you on this gig. And so in 1994, he put me on some gig and, uh, and I was like, oh yeah, I can do this. This is cool. And you know, the, the light goes off over your head when you realize that if you do the level of excellence that you're used to doing in your other work and you do it on a corporate work, it's number one, it's greatly appreciated. Number two, you're treated like an adult. Number three, you're paid really well. And number four, you know, the, the environment is, is just a totally different environment and it, some people like it. And I really liked it a lot. The environment doing corporates is, can be very, very professional at, at times, most of the time. And the, uh, and the thing is, I just was like, wow, this is good. I can do this. And this is, this will be something good to fill in the gaps in between doing some music shows that I do. And so uh, I, I thank Harold for getting me started with it. And I've since done a few gigs here and there with Harold and he's, he does a lot of corporate work and, um, and he used to do a lot of music work. I mean, he was the guy with uh, with so many bands back in the 70s and 80s. But then he switched to doing corporate work. And I was like, yeah, that's a kind of natural transition for somebody that's very techie and genius. And I don't consider myself techie or genius, but I was at least – I could I well, could fit you in. Built, I you could... built a console. You are you are. Tech. I mean, <laughs> well, not like not like Har- not like Harold. Though you should see Harold. Harold is like whoosh, you know over the top. But anyway, the the point is that uh, that I could fit in. You know, I mean, it, a lot of people don't really care for that environment whatsoever. And I I could totally dig that environment. I did it as a staff guy for what like ten years, and it was really good. And that company was great to work for. And all the gigs that we did were for the most part great gigs, and you got treated really well and paid really well and everything was great about it. And it's the only missing thing was you didn't have the, the, um, the adrenaline rush that you get from a music show where, you know, you're, you're part, and when I'm doing sound for a music show and the band gets applause or excitement at the end of a song or during a song, even you feel like you're part of that because especially being in the audience, mixing the sound for the audience, you are definitely a part of that applause. And it's like, yes, we did it. We got this point across and it worked, you know, corporate thing, corporate audiences are for the most part, they're forced to be there or paid to be, you know, paid to be there, but they're not paying to be there is what I always said. And, and the, the, you know, the, excitement level for for a corporate gig is not there it's not exciting uh, for the most part i mean yes it's exciting on the level of we accomplished this and the client is extremely happy that's fantastic and our little family of people that made this show happen uh succeeded and were uh, they very much appreciate it and it's great on that level but it's not the same as being in the middle of an audience during a show that people paid money for tickets for and they're, and the audience is applauding like crazy. It's just not the same. So you, um, you know, you take the good with the bad, you know? And so that, that 
I, I kind of missed that. And that, so that was why when I had the opportunity to get back into doing some music stuff, I was like, yeah, I, I can do some music stuff and do the corporates on the side instead of corporate stuff with music on the side, you know, and it's, uh, they each have their own good and bad points. And, uh, the corporate thing is, is good for a lot of people and not so good for some people, you know? I was laughing the other day. Well, I guess it was like last year at this point. Uh, uh, Jimmy Akabuski, <laughs> who is, is a good friend of the show and he's been on a bunch of times and he mixed, you know, just a, a who's who of gigantic artists. Yep. Um, yep. He's doing this corporate thing. He sent me a picture. He's like in a corner somewhere, you know, <laughs> with, <Right. laughs> with a like a little Mackie eight channel yeah, right, right. analog. He's kind of like hunched over, you know. <laughs> I yep. was just like, yep. damn, man. Like, yeah, they well, have no you know, idea what's going on, you know. <laughs> does the does the word audio whore come to mind? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, Jim. Yeah, yeah, paying, Jim but... I I know Jim back in the mid nineties when I was doing Julio, he was one of the guys that filled in when I couldn't do it. He was uh, filled in for me, so to speak, uh, on the Julio gig back in the nineties. But yeah, we go back. Well, it's just so funny. It's like whiplash almost. <laughs> yeah. Well, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a proper episode if we didn't touch on food. So, Ken, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so, you know, in your travels across the country and the world, what would be uh, what would be your go to stop if you had to stop at a random city and find food? Oh my gosh, I am uh, I am Mister um, Sleazy when it comes to food. I'm not a food aficionado uh, of any sort. Um, I know friends of mine keep uh, records of exactly what restaurant had what great dish in it and so forth. But, um, you know, I'll go to a Subway, I'll go to a Chick-fil-A, I'll go to, uh, you know, any place, a uh, Carl's Jr. And get, I mean, they have you're a right on Beyond part of Michael, Michael's favorite place is Taco Bell. So, I mean, yeah, baby. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I would stay away from Taco Bell and Del Taco. But, <laughs> but you know, one step up from that, the Subway, you know, Subway, uh, one friend of mine once called Subway the, uh, oh, well, you have to be from San Francisco to know what this means, but he called Subway the projection of sandwich shops. And you, know, you don't know what that means, mm. right? But there's a company called Projection in San Francisco that's very sleazy AV, right? <laughs> I well, guess. No, they're, they're they're nationwide projection. Oh, oh is yeah. that right? Oh, okay, yeah, so yeah, but yeah. not the greatest, very generic, right, or something. Anyway, what he was I'm trying to say problem. was that he, okay, he was trying to say that uh, wow, really, you go to Subway? That's the projection of sandwich shops, like as if you know what you couldn't go to. There's so many much better places to go to in San Francisco, but yeah, I go to like Subway, you know, rubber stamp assembly line sandwiches. But like that's fine though. You, it's I don't. Sometimes I'm not trying to like have a relationship. I just want a sandwich, you know. I, so, you know, I, I'll go. I'll find myself <laughs> in a Subway shop. Or, in all parts of the world because I know that it's going to be somewhat consistent with uh, wherever I came from. And so call me crazy, but I like consistency and people, people often call me crazy for going to subway. I mean, we'll be, you know, right next to a beautiful restaurant that had great, has great food and I'll go, no, I'll go for the subway. But, uh, you know, but, uh, but there's plenty, there's plenty of great places like, man, uh, you know, in England, the Indian is uh, amazing. And I really Mm -hmm. like going for some Indian food in England. That's fantastic. And occasionally I'll go for, uh, you know, like, oh, and in, when we were in, um, when we were in New York City for a month last year, I went to Bear Burger like every day practically because they had these uh, Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers. And I don't know if you've had those, but they're vegan based. They're not, there's no meat in them, but man, they taste amazing. And they just had great salads and great Bear Burgers and, and, uh, I mean, uh, Beyond Burgers and <laughs> Impossible Burgers at this Bear Burger restaurant. It was great. It was really great. So I'm I'm easy I think when it comes to food. 
so 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 no so no no one's listening now. What's the what's the what's, what's the what's the real dirt on Will Miller and that relationship between Monica and Prada House? Wait, don't do it. It's a trap. Will Miller and what? It's a trap. <laughs> No, that relationship between Monitors in front of house and Will Miller. What's that? Uh, what's the real dirt there? Oh well, the real dirt there is that Will um, excels at that gig, and I think it's ninety percent because of his uh, knowledge of psychology. Uh, you know, yes. he is just he is just a wizard when it comes to what to say at the right time. He'll get on the intercom with me, and he'll be, um, you know, very upset about something that's happening. Let's say, just put it generically, and he'll be very upset. But then face to face with the artist he's like oh yeah sure yeah we can do that yeah 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 oh yeah cheery mr cheery and mr nice you know i'm like wow i don't know how you do that will because i mean i would have been fired at the if i ever tried to do monitors for a show like that i would be fired within a week you know i could tell you some stories about how i have been fired within a week on those kind of gigs but uh but but will is is so great at the psychology part of it and then not to mention he's really good at the sound part of it but can i tell you the secret to the to how that monitor rig works did i t- did he tell you about the monitor rig i don't think so no. the monitor rig for manilo is a very kind of it's not unique because i've heard of other people doing this but it's unique to our situation that's for sure and that is when when i was okay so i was coming back on the gig after not having been there for 10 years and then um Will was just starting on the gig, but Barry still knew that I knew the songs and I knew how he liked them to sound and so forth. So he, so Barry's basic concept was, and remember Barry's a musician first and a performer second, right? So he's thinking about this from a musical standpoint and he's going, you know, why don't we just give, you know, why don't you just give me the front of house mix music wise in my, in the speakers and then give me my vocal in my ears. He has these special ear monitors that you can hear. Th- they have slots. They're, they're not. Um, mm-hmm. They're not closed. And they're also just only tweeters, which stands to reason because when he used to use speaker monitors, the it always used to sound like the woofer was off. Anyway, he he only likes to have high end in his monitors for some reason. I think he gets the low end from the house or something. But anyway, the point is that he he said, put my voice in my ears, put the music around me. And make the piano, make my piano nice and loud and nice and bright. Everything will be great. And we did that. And sure enough, he was thrilled with that. And so I send Will a mix minus. That is, you know, the house mix minus the lead vocal, minus the pianos. Um, probably not minus anything else. That's about it. Lead vocal and pianos is the only thing missing from it. And it's after everything. It's, you know, it's, you know, post, post everything fader. So if I'm, if I'm bringing up the band in the house because it's getting really great sounding and stuff, He's bringing it down so that it's not getting too loud on stage, you know, but he just has a, a fader for me and a fader for a voice and a fader for piano. You know, he has just a handful of faders and oh, don't get me wrong. There's so certain wh- parts. So wait, of why does he need a PM 10? <laughs> well, there's certain, there's certain number one. Well, <laughs> give, him that, give him that thing you built with the three knobs on it. Let's just go back. To yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. Right. But the thing, the thing is there are per- certain parts of the show where he sends cer- certain things directly to Barry's wedge or something, you know, like uh, when he, like this one, one song he knows he, he has to turn the drums on to the wedge. Otherwise he'll get out of sync with the band. But, you know, other than that, it's just a generic band mix from me. And it's like, wow, really? That works? Okay. Well, if it works, good for us, you know? And it apparently works because Will's been, you know, being on the receiving end of my mix for years now. And he just knows what to do with it at what time to make Barry happy. And he's thrilled because he gets the voice sound from Will. And Will has that voice down to a science. He knows exactly what Barry wants it to sound like. And then he's got the piano de- sound down to a science. And then he gets the band from me and it's all good 
<laughs> you know, it all just works. Yeah. So it's pretty crazy. Um, pretty crazy uh, way to do things, having the band come out of the speakers and the other things come in his ears, but it works for him. So that's what we say. Good. At the end. Yeah. At the end of the day, what are we, what am I there for? I'm there to keep him happy. I'm not there to do the best sound in the world. I'm not there to, to please the audience. I'm not there to please Will. I'm, I'm there to get Barry happy. And if he's happy, then everybody's happy, you know? So that's, that's what I feel like I, um, succeed at on a regular basis. And, Although, you know, the, the audience sound has to be good. He, he, they have to be able to hear him and stuff, but it's the main thing is that he's happy. That's the main thing. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's our philosophy here on the, on the signal noise podcast too. We want, we want Kyle to be happy. He's not with us tonight, but happy artist, about- happy <laughs> artist is a good artist, right? So happy Kyle is a good Kyle. Right. Ken, thank you for joining us, man. This yep, was a lot of you. fun. It was really cool. Oh, sh- cool. It's cool to be with you guys. Uh, sorry that I rambled on about all these silly subjects. That's, but, why, uh, that's why we brought you we on, can, actually. <laughs> we can do some more of it. Because I, you know, I, I had a whole list of stories that I was going to tell you, and I haven't even told you one of them yet. So so uh, maybe we'll, you'll invite me back for silly story time. There you go. We'll do it.